Up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has primarily dealt with, um, with physical things, um, by which I mean, I mean spiritual things. I, I, I've got that backwards there, excuse me. He's primarily dealt with spiritual realities, spiritual um, truths that he wants us to understand, how to be happy, how to fast, how to pray, how to give, etc., etc. And now, at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to, to shift to more horizontal things, more physical things as we live in the world. And we would be remiss not to understand that there is a connection between the spiritual and the physical. Usually, unhealth in one area leads to unhealth in other areas. If our relationship with God is unhealthy, then naturally our relationship to the world, to things, and to people will be unhealthy as well. And if our relationship with people is unhealthy or things or stuff in this world, it's likely an indication of spiritual unhealth as well. The reality is the way we view God and the way we relate to God and the way we understand his word affects how we live in the world. And so here Jesus begins making this very distinct shift in his, in his teaching uh, to, to dealing with physical things. And so we're going to see this as Jesus calls us today to one focus and gives us two commands, and then finally shows us three illustrations. We are being called here in this passage to, by Jesus to one focus. And really, this is the point of this entire section. And we're not going to spend a ton of time on this here and now uh, because that, that it will be borne out in the whole of this sermon but the point of this, this whole thing is that we are to have one singular focus. Look with me at the end of this, this portion of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot, in fact, if we look at the whole of verse 24, you cannot serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot serve both God and money. And this is going to be illustrated in several ways for us, but the primary way that this is going to be illustrated for us by Jesus in this text today is through that of money, or we might say treasure. We are, people are decisively physical creatures. We are thing-oriented Usually we think that money or what money will supply will make us happy. I, was, I had lunch with a pastor this week and we were walking through the, the church and he was speaking with a lady in her, his congregation who was like, well, I only buy lottery tickets if it gets over, you know, like $100 million. Because he, he very gently encouraged her um, that, that lotteries, they, they prey on the weak, on the poor, and they really do. Um, they are not good for a culture. 
But the reality is, in buying a ticket, once it gets up to that uh, amount, we betray the reality that we think, oh, once it's that amount, it just might buy me something that will contribute to my happiness. What does the Bible call this kind of duality, this kind of double focus? Well, I can love money and Jesus. I can love stuff and Jesus. I I need God plus something to make me happy. Scripture calls this idolatry. Idolatry comes in many forms. Uh, Idolatry comes in the form of thinking that God is other than he is. Thinking things that are untrue about God. This is always, this is why we're doing the series at the beginning of the month on the attributes of God. The pressing question before us all is always, who is God? Because if we think something about God that is untrue, and then we worship him for that untrue thing, we are not worshiping the true God. We are worshiping an idol, an idol formed in our own depraved minds and hearts that inevitably is always created after our own image. Or it could be bowing before a false god, just a completely wrong idea of God. But here we see that idolatry is thinking that we need something other than God to make us happy. The book of Galatians addresses this in great detail, and actually had the opportunity to talk to a couple of people about this this week. But kingdom math is really simple, and that's good, because for knuckleheads like me who are horrible at math, I need simple kingdom math. But here is math in God's kingdom. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But Jesus plus anything equals nothing. If if there's anything I have to add, the book of Galatians illustrates this wonderfully, where these leaders have come into the church and all they're telling the people is, well, look, before you can believe in Jesus, yes, Jesus is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, he is the one who saved, he is the Lord, he died, he was resurrected, and and faith in, in him is what saves, but only after you've been circumcised. You must be Jewish, and then Jesus will save you. And Paul Paul corrects the church in Galatia there, saying that they've even been bewitched by this other gospel, even though there is no other gospel. Is adding circumcision to faith really that big a deal? Is adding obedience to faith for salvation really that big a deal? Is adding baptism to faith for salvation really that big a deal? It is. Because the moment we try and contribute anything to our salvation, the fundamental statement that we're making is that Jesus did not fully accomplish our salvation. And we have to then add something to it. Jesus got almost there, but you have to be baptized, or take communion, or be circumcised. 
whatever it is, to add anything to Jesus is idolatry. And here, that's what Jesus is reminding us, that you cannot serve both God and money, God and mammon. We are called to a single devotion and focus upon Christ. Again, that whole thing will be borne out as we continue. Jesus does this by giving us two commands. We are to have a single focus, but Jesus, in calling us to this single focus, gives us two commands. Starting in verse 19, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, you're going to have to forgive me. Today might be a little bit technical in terms of Greek, uh, but there's a lot going on in this passage. And unless it really matters, I try not to bring it in, but I think here we see things that really matter. To lay up for yourselves is the same root word as the word treasure. And almost literally, not almost, but literally what Jesus is saying here is stop treasuring for yourselves treasures on earth. The present tense imperative means that this is not a warning. This is not a possibility that he's warning against. He's not saying, hey, this, I'm, I'm, let, me, let me warn you. There's this uh, pothole in the road of your spiritual life that you need to avoid. No, what Jesus is doing is telling us to stop doing something we are already doing. That's what a present tense imperative does. You are already treasuring treasures on earth, and you are to stop. Wealth in that day was bound up often in two things, clothing and grain. Clothing and grain. Clothing was not easily accessible like it is today. You couldn't get online and have a whole wardrobe. We've spoken recently uh, that even a, a tunic, what would have kept somebody warm, what we would call a coat, probably each person only had one of. And even in Israel, if you took that as collateral for a loan, you were to return it before nightfall because their only cloak would have been what kept them warm. Sometimes wealth was even hidden in the cloak. I had a friend in Tucson who was a jeweler, and we were talking one day about gold and why gold makes such good uh, good. Uh, substance for jewelry, and he said that gold has an incredibly high tensile strength. He said if we could take a gold ring, and somehow or another you and I were strong enough to like grab each side of it with a pair of pliers and pull, it would just stretch into this long, thin string all the way from here to the door. It would just keep stretching until it was really thin. It has a high tensile strength. Sometimes uh, people hid their gold in their clothing by stretching that gold out like that and then weaving it into the fabric. Most of that clothing would have been made primarily of wool, not cotton and things like that that we make clothing of today, or grain. So if somebody is, you know, Jesus illustrates this often, a wealthy man decided he was going to big, lar build larger barns to put more grain. Joseph bought up grain in Egypt and made Pharaoh incredibly wealthy. Most wealth was bound up in clothing, this would speak to Joseph's coat of many colors, and grain. Well, Jesus warns us about this. He says, do not lay up for yourselves, stop 
doing that now. Stop laying up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and, this is what it literally says, where moth and the eating destroy. Moths love to eat wool. And rats, vermin, love to eat grain. Maybe rust is in mind, but, but really the idea is not so much that of rust, but, but the, where, where things are eaten away. And certainly rust eats away at metals, and mice and rat eats, eat away at grain, and moths eat away at clothing. Our wealth in this life is constantly degrading. So stop laying up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth, moth, moth I'll get that word out, <laughs> where moth and the eating destroy, and where thieves literally dig through. Imagine digging a hole through an adobe house and making access for yourself. There's still one of the biggest bank robberies ever. Uh, some, some thieves managed in L.A. to dig up through the ground into a vault and were never caught. Stole millions and millions of dollars. To this day, no idea who it was. I think it was from Bank of America, if I've got my details correct. Or where thieves dig in and steal. And so this first command is to stop what we're already doing. Stop treasuring up treasures in this earth. Let me ask, do you check your spiritual investments as often as as you check your retirement or your bank account? Are you as concerned with making spiritual deposits in other people as you are concerned with your paycheck? What would you do if you got to your next payday and your check wasn't there or your direct deposit didn't go through? Are you that concerned between now and over the next two weeks how you might do spiritual good for someone else in the church or in the world? That, these things reveal where our treasures are. And then the second command after all of this is to do something else. But in contrast to this, Lay up, treasure up for yourselves, treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Scripture doesn't forbid wealth. In fact, here's something interesting for you. There is only one instance in all of Scripture where a wealthy person is asked by God to divest themselves of their wealth. And that's the rich young ruler. And the issue was not his wealth. The issue was his affection. Abraham was wealthy, and God never asked him not to be. Solomon was wealthy, and unfortunately, it drew his heart away to other things. Ananias and Sapphira, they're not criticized in Acts for keeping some of the money back for themselves. They're criticized for lying it. In fact, I think it was the Apostle Peter in Acts who says, Was it not in your control before you sold it? 
In other words, what Peter is saying is, if you wanted the money, you should have just not sold the land. Or they could have sold some of the land and said, we're giving this portion to the Lord, we're keeping this portion for ourselves, and all would have been fine. But their love of stuff led them to lie to the Lord about what they had sold and what they had kept. Scripture does not forbid anyone from being wealthy. It promises us that the more wealthy we are, the more troubles we will have. That's true. Totally true. Anybody seen that TV show? It's like a reality TV show on what happens to most lottery winners. They either lose it all, oftentimes give themselves to drugs, some of them commit suicide, doesn't provide them with the the peace that they had hoped for. And so the, the first command is stop laying up treasures on earth and start laying up treasures in heaven. And then Jesus illustrates this for us in three ways, with treasure, with sight, and with slavery, if you will. The first illustration uh, is built on the command to stop doing what we're doing and to start laying up for ourselves treasure in heaven where it doesn't corrode or get stolen or, or eaten. This verse does not forbid covetousness, but as John Stott said, it forbids, like, it forbids being misers who hoard and materialists who always want more. It's not about wealth so much as, as being those who, who hoard for ourselves. And, and notice that, and we're not going to deal with it today, but immediately in the next verses, Jesus speaks to the issue of anxiety, particularly about what we will wear or what we will eat or what we will drink. We're forbidden from being hoarders who are just trying to accumulate more stuff for our security because you can accumulate all you want and think that you're secure and God can call you before his judgment throne today. There is not real security in the hoarding of things, nor materialists who always want more, thinking, hey, if I just had more, I'll be happy. I think most of us are under the impression that our our treasures follow our heart. Wherever our heart is, that's where we invest our treasure. But I think Jesus presents us with something different here. Notice what he says after commanding us not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth where they waste away and are stolen, but rather instead to do so in heaven. He says in verse 20, one, notice the tenses, a present tense followed by a future tense. The present tense is, for where your treasure is right now, where your treasure is at this moment, what you invest in now, there your heart will be future also. He doesn't say, for where your heart is, there your treasure will be. No, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. We are are made by God, no matter how good a leader you may or may not be, to be followers. And our hearts follow whatever we treasure. This is why 
with such urgency, and so often I speak to what our hearts treasure. It is of ultimate importance. Where our treasure is, there our heart will be. If you're waiting for your heart to be in spiritual things, to invest in spiritual things, you will be waiting forever. If you're sitting here today and you're like, you know, my heart just isn't in spiritual things. My my heart is in earthly things. I want to work more. I want to climb the corporate ladder. I want the lottery jackpot. I want the big house with big money and big cars and all the things. Because if I just don't have to worry about where my next whatever comes from, then I'll be happy. And once I'm there, once I have that degree of security, once I have that thing that I don't have right now, well, then I'll begin to invest in spiritual things, it's never going to happen. We have to decide that we're going to invest in in spiritual things. And this gets tricky. We'll talk more about why it's tricky here later. To be clear, as Jesus illustrates this for us with this idea of treasure, he is not speaking primarily about what we have. He is speaking entirely about what we love. He's speaking about what we love. And he wants, he wants himself to be the supreme love. Not because he's an egomaniac, but because he knows two things. Number one, You can love nothing, you can delight in nothing, you can enjoy nothing that is better than Him. If anything else that you want to enjoy, family, work, vacation, friends, the church, whatever it is, if you think that there is more joy in that thing than in God, then what you are fundamentally saying is that thing is better than God and therefore is God. This is why it's idolatry. So he wants us to understand that there is no greater pleasure. You will experience no greater joy. And if you want to see this fleshed out, next hour right here, go to Dan's Philippians class, because Philippians is all about joy. I mean, you read Philippians, and it's joy, 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 all over. Be joyful, rejoice. It's all about joy. He knows that there is nothing that can satisfy us, nothing more beautiful, nothing more enjoyable than him. And secondly, he knows that everything else will ultimately betray you. Everything else will ultimately betray you. Oh, my spouse will never betray me. They will be faithful to me from here to eternity. And even if that is true, they will die. You cannot find your ultimate satisfaction in them. If you happen to have a spouse who's never disappointed you, you either got married this morning or you know something I don't know. And we'd love to hear it. Spouses are wonderful things, but they're not God's. They make wonderful gifts from God. 
and they make lousy gods. Those things will always betray us. So the first illustration of this is treasure. What we treasure, what we invest in, is where our heart will be. Our treasure must go first. Secondly, Jesus illustrates this with vision. And this is where we get pretty technical, so I'll try and keep it simple. But Jesus says um, in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, it's what lets light in. It is, by, it is what we see by. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. In other words, treasuring things other than God grows in you like a cataract until you can't see anymore. And what you need is to have that cataract removed so that the light can come in. Now, here's where this gets pretty technical. There's more than one word in Greek for if. And what you do after the word if in Greek determines what you mean by the word if. Now, these two statements are what we call first-class conditional clauses. What is a first-class conditional clause? It is like a proverb. It is a generally applicable truth in all places at all times. That's what Jesus is saying. It's true for you. It's true for me. It's true for all people at all times. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If what you look at is good, you will be good. I can hear my youth pastor growing up who used to say all the time, over and over, garbage in, garbage out. What goes in, if what we see is good, remember we've seen this in 2 Corinthians and through lots of places in Scripture. It's one of my, my favorite sayings. We become what we behold. If we behold dark things, we will become dark things. But if we behold good things, then good things will result. Here is where this gets even more interesting. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy... If your eye is good, this is not the typical Greek word for healthy, like I went to the doctor and he told me I was healthy. The word means one, haplus, as opposed to duplus, two, duo, one, singular. What? I mean, we can't translate this this way. So if the eye is the lamp, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is one, your whole body will be full of light? What does that mean? It means that if what you behold is the Lord in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy, and that is your single devotion, you're not trying to divide your, your view uh, over two masters. If, if your eye is healthily devoted to one thing that is the Lord, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, paniros, this is evil, if your eye is evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. Interestingly, the, the, the language here, and I'm not going to go into the technical, the, all the technicalities of it, is connected to the idea, oftentimes in Hebrew, uh, of this, this evil gain. 
Maybe if you have an old translation, it might say filthy lucre. It's, it's this idea that, that um, uh, uh, if I could sum it up maybe the most simple way, uh, of greed. If your eye is one, singularly devoted to the Lord, your whole body will be full of light. That's true for all of us at all times. But if your eye is greedy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Uh, It reminds us of Paul's words that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so when we are wholly devoted uh, to God, when He is our treasure, we will be full of light. But when we are greedy, we are full of darkness. And then we get a third class conditional clause, which is different. This is particularly what follows this different word for if here, suggests a future possibility. So this is not always true generally for all people at all time. This is the pothole in the road warning. This is the, hey, look out, something is out there and it could be bad. But it doesn't necessarily have to be true. And that is the, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Have you ever met anybody who didn't think they had the light of truth? Everybody thinks they have the light of truth. Everybody thinks that they are living and walking in the truth, no matter how right or wrong they are. And these people who walk around in darkness but think they have the light, if the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. In other words, how great and evil to treasure anything above God. How great is the darkness in us if we are greedy and devoted to other things and believe that we walk in the light. So the first illustration is treasure. The second illustration is vision. And the third illustration is that of slavery or a master. The bottom line principle of what Jesus is teaching us here is that no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. On one side of this equation is the Lord, and on the other side of the equation is literally everything else. And Jesus doesn't present them to us as though they were uh, two bosses. This isn't like, I work two jobs and I've got one boss at one job and one boss during the other job. You you couldn't belong to two masters. If, If you had sold yourself into slavery, you belonged wholly to one individual. And so it is with us. You cannot serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And right here in this, pa- this part of this passage, there's a significant shift in, in the, the number of all of the words. What do I mean by number? It's all been plural up to this point. 
But, but just before, in verse 23, Jesus shifts to, to no longer speaking in pluralities. He's not saying, but if the light in y'all is darkness, plural. No, he's saying if the light in you is darkness. How great the darkness. Because no one, no individual can serve two masters. For either he or she, either you or I, will hate the one and love the other, or he, she, you, I will be devoted to the one and despise the other. There is no escape from this reality. As Paul put it in Romans, we are either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. And if we belong to Jesus, then we need to consider with what we were bought. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Futile ways of storing up things in this life where moth destroy, where rust and decay destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. That is futility. That is Solomon's vanity of vanities. We were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. We were bought by his precious blood. We can either be slaves to anything in the sphere of stuff or to Christ, but we cannot belong to both simultaneously. John MacArthur said, The orders of these two masters are diametrically opposed and cannot coexist. The one commands us to walk by faith, and the other demands we walk by sight. The one calls us to be humble, and the other to be proud. The one to set our minds on things above, and the, and the other to set them on things below. One calls us to love light, the other to love darkness. The one tells us to look toward things unseen and eternal, and the other to look at things seen or temporal. Notice at the end. He does not say you may not. Jesus doesn't say you, you may not serve God in money. He says you cannot serve God and money. It's, it's, not, a possible, it's not a possible thing. You, you can't love both. In closing, I would remind us that it's not hard to find what our hearts are devoted to. All we have to do is follow the trail of our treasure. And I'll give you two examples, uh, two treasure trails to follow, and then talk about why it's complicated. Follow the trail of your time and follow the trail of your money. And you will find where your treasure is. You will find your heart at the end of that rainbow. You'll find the things that you are devoted to. If all of your time is spent at work, that's not good. You can't devote yourself to massive amounts of work and to all the other things that, that the Lord commands of you. What if all of your time is spent with family? You're like, Logan, don't, don't touch that. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm devoted to my family. It's all I do. Well, here's where it gets complicated. 
Are you devoted to your family because you think that gives you purpose? Because you think it will give you joy? Because you think it will bring meaning to your life? If you do, you probably had a kid this morning. Because they're going to shatter those realities as they prove themselves to be little sinners. But, but here's why it's complicated. You can do those things in devotion to Christ. If you serve your family as a means of serving God, that's wonderful. But it becomes really easy for our families to become our God. If you enjoy the world as a gift from God, that's wonderful. But if you idolize recreation and entertainment, you've set up, well, I already said it, you've you've set up an idol. We as, as believers in Jesus with access to the word of God should have a better theology of work than anybody else out there. I mean... Really, if we're, if we're working in the way that Scripture commands us to work with an understanding of what work is, every employer out there should want to be like, oh, you're a Christian, I'll hire you. Because you're going to be the best employee I ever had. But if we idolize our work, if we, find our, if we think we can find our purpose and meaning in it, then, then it's meaningless. Work, family, Recreation, the church, all of these things are wonderful gifts from God. And all of them are lousy gods. So it's tricky. It's tricky to follow the the trail of our time and and our money and, and to discover where those things are because, you know, sometimes... Sometimes we can appear to be devoted to those things, but really in the end, be devoted to Christ. The reality, though, is what do we do with those things? If we spend 45 or 50 hours a week at work, is it because work is our idol or because we're trying to be obedient to the Lord? How does that compare in terms of our devotion to our families? If we go on vacation and recreate in in the world that God has given us, uh, to, to enjoy, that's a wonderful thing. But if we neglect the church as a result, maybe our priorities are out of whack. All of this is to just say, follow the trail of your treasures. See if you need to shift where your treasures are to maybe bring your heart in alignment. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And this is why I say over and over and over again that our salvation is not primarily a matter of what we know. It is primarily a matter of what we love. What we love. Maybe we are believers here today who are like, you know what? I, like the church in Ephesus, have abandoned my first love, and I need to shift my treasure to realign my heart. But maybe, maybe you're here today and you're like, you know what? I've never treasured Christ over other things. I've never treasured Christ over wealth or sex or fame or popularity or work or my family. Then today, today's the day, and really not just for those of us who have never believed. The call on all of us today 
is to see Christ, to see his sinless life, his death in our place, his resurrection for our salvation, his holiness, his perfection, his lack of sin, his power, his might, his goodness, his kindness, his faithfulness, his justice, and his wrath, and to find him supremely worthy of our joy and of our delight. Father, we cannot do that on our own. Uh, We are physical creatures, and our hearts are clearly drawn towards physical things. Would you give us a delight in you that exceeds all other things? And even if there's much to do in terms of learning to live that out, Would you help us today to start by just seeing that there can be no other thing that exists that can provide us with more joy, more satisfaction, more beauty, more pleasure than you. That everything that exists in this world, apart from the abuse of those things by sin, exists to show us something true about you. That everything in the world we interact with is lesser beauties to point us to your greater beauties. May we faithfully live these things out, faithfully work according to your plan, faithfully love our spouses and our children according to your plan, faithfully worship and serve in your church according to your plan, but all as secondary things in finding you supremely worthy. Be supremely worthy not only to us as a church, but to each and, a, each and every one of us as individuals in, a, in our daily lives, not only for your glory, but so that the world might see that you are worthy of our affections and join us in loving you and in delighting in you and, and in being forgiven of our sins because of all that Jesus has done for us. Be glorified in it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.